On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. First of all, we're going to speak to the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald. Mary Lou, thank you for joining us this lunchtime. First of all, your reflections on the results of the Assembly elections now that we know them in full. Well, I think it has been a very significant uh, election. I mean, the, the words seismic and historic and other terms have been used. I think it's fair to say that the election crystallises the depth and the extent of change that has occurred um, in the north of Ireland. I think it's extremely significant that for the first time, a nationalist or Republican party commands uh, the biggest share of the vote. And more significant, again, that we have now um, in Michelle O'Neill, the first uh, nationalist, Republican, progressive person to uh, potentially lead the executive and to occupy the office of first minister. And as listeners will know, the, the, the history of the north of Ireland is such that it was engineered and established precisely to prevent and Michelle O'Neill from ever being in the office of, of First Minister. So I think it's a great marker of change, a great marker of uh, progress and a great statement of equality now that there is no office in the land, no office in the north of Ireland to which uh, anybody can be excluded or that can be beyond the reach of anybody, irrespective of your political or, or religious affiliation. Mm. I think that's a great moment for equality. For the last couple of years, in fact, for longer than that, your party has described the office that Michelle recently held as not a deputy first minister, but rather as joint first minister. And that's a reflection of the fact that ultimately the two offices wield an equal amount of power that one cannot act unilaterally. It always has to act in concert with the other. So from that perspective, is really Michelle's new perspective title only a change of plaque on the door? Does it materially change anything? Well, the office is a joint office and we're, we're very mindful and respectful of that fact. As you know, uh, we have, and uh, Michelle herself has served as Deputy First Minister in that joint office. Um, so the, the two people uh, in the uh, office of First and Deputy First Minister have to work together. It's it, It's it's designed specifically to foster collaboration and partnership. And I think that's a good thing. Um, so I would, however, also say to you that the, the uh, prospect and the reality now of a nationalist or Republican first minister is symbolic for sure, but it moves beyond symbolism also because it is, I suppose, uh, a test on the one hand of equality, commitment to power sharing. I mean, it's it's uh, very important that the DUP, who, who have emerged as the second largest party, demonstrate respect and inclusion by agreeing to serve in that joint office with a Republican first uh, minister. And I, I think that um, is, is more than symbolism for wider society because it sends out a very, very clear message to everybody um, from all communities, of all uh, political perspectives and none, that equality and sharing power, parity of esteem, all of that good stuff that has its roots in the Good Friday Agreement, that we are all committed to that, not just rhetorically, mm. but, but indeed as well as words. So on that note then, we've had the DUP declining to stay for certain for the last uh, six weeks of this campaign and a need for longer, that it would agree to form a new executive with you under the terms of Michelle being First Minister and its nominee being Deputy First Minister. Does that scream to you like it's, it's the DUP in a bit of a sulk? 
Well, I, th- I think it's it's more serious than that. I mean, it, it, it says that the DUP, a section of political unionism, um, is only interested in the democratic process when they come out on top or that they're only interested in working together when it's on their terms. I, I, I just cannot emphasise enough how essential it is for the DUP, for the leader, Jeffrey Donaldson, to be crystal clear now that they will, in fact, um, share the office of uh, First and Deputy First Minister with Michelle O'Neill. I think that's essential and it, because it goes to the core of the entire project, not just of peace building, but of, of developing um, politics in the north of Ireland, planning for the here and now, delivering for people in the here and now, and also planning for our future. Well, so it's clearly not acceptable for... Uh, the DUP to refuse to serve with Michelle O'Neill simply because uh, for the first time we have a Republican first minister. And I think a broad opinion right across the country and beyond would find that a very unacceptable position from from the Democratic Unionist Party. Well, we know what the other reason why the DUP may not form an executive is, and that is because, as they have said, they, they don't think it is possible at all. And I know you will disagree, but they say it's not possible at all to have a functioning executive while the protocol remains in place, while there are still sea border checks, while they feel that Northern Ireland is somewhat being fragmented away from the rest of the United Kingdom. That is the platform upon which they fought the election. They basically fought it on a platform of abstentionism for as long as the protocol remains in place. Is that not their mandate now? Would they not be fulfilling that mandate by staying away? No, in in fact, they will be um, letting everybody down, including those who voted for them, if they refuse to get back to work tomorrow with the rest of us. I mean... They will have heard on the doorsteps, the same as ourselves, the depth of the crisis that so many families and workers are experiencing now. We're in a cost of living crisis. We have £330 million uh, that the executive has been unable to distribute and put back in people's pockets because we haven't had an executive. And I think anybody, the DUP or anybody else, suggesting for a second that they will stand on the sidelines and watch as people struggle and struggle on, that they will insist on a further delay in getting that money into people's pockets is just um, totally unacceptable. And I think we'll be met with very, very wide public uh, hostility. But but is is it not their right to prioritise things, though? If if they decide that the border checks are a bigger political priority than cost of living or anything else, is that not their right? And has that not been endorsed by their voters? Well, they they can make that choice uh, for sure, but but the consequence of it is that their political posturing means that people across societies, workers, families, and communities will suffer, and uh, it, to me that is a, a, a terrible vista and is unacceptable. And here's the second point, Gavin, if I can make this: the reality is that the difficulties, as the DUP perceive them, with the protocol can only be sorted out through a process of good faith engagement and dialogue between the government in London and the European institutions. That's the fact. Keeping the institutions, keeping the executive down in Belfast will not change the protocol one iota. And furthermore, and Geoffrey Donaldson knows this, the DUP know there is a committee, a specific committee that is established to deal 
with issues around the protocol, none of which are insurmountable. In fact, very considerable progress has been made. Issues around medicines, for example, have been resolved. Issues around paperwork are not beyond resolution. And in fact, the European institutions have made very clear that if there is a good faith engagement, that up mm. to 80% or so of those uh, paper barriers can can actually be uh, resolved but, but, and the dup argued for brexit i mean this is this is all a consequence of brexit so i don't sure. accept okay. any of those alibis and let me repeat it's not acceptable when people are struggling when we have 400,000 people for example on waiting lists hospital waiting lists north of the border for the dup to play games like mm. this and to they've walked themselves down a cul-de-sac and I think the politically wise thing, if I can say so, but also the democratic thing to do now is to get themselves out of that cul-de-sac and not to deepen uh, their own difficulties, which in turn mean a uh, hardship for, for wider but society. There is an argument that your party, when it contests elections to Westminster, also does so on that sort of abstentionist platform. And we don't need to relitigate the reasons why your party doesn't uh, take its seats in Westminster. I think those are, are pretty well on the record and we're not going to get we're not going to solve a, a decades old dispute in this slot right now. But that's the mandate that you seek from your voters and that's the mandate then that you exercise. And if the DUP's mandate is irrespective of whether Stormont actually has a role in renegotiating or solving the protocol issues, that if their mandate is to stay away, wouldn't they be in breach of their mandate by then going back to the table when they have told their voters they wouldn't and their voters have endorsed that stance? Well, of course, the the great distinction between the two elections is that those elected from the north of Ireland are a tiny, tiny minority, a minuscule number of seats in in a huge parliament at Westminster and politics at Westminster and government uh, creation ploughs ahead irrespective and sometimes um, in great hostility to the the interests Mm. or needs of Ireland. But Westminster is also the platform where a border poll might actually happen though, not Stormont. Well, well, you asked me about the DUP refusing to go back into Mm. uh, government and I have said to you, I think in the most explicit way that I can, that I think that is that is wrong, that is deeply wrong, and that will cause real hardship to people in their lives now because people are living a cost of living in a cost of living crisis okay. now. And I think it is wrong, deeply wrong for uh, the DUP to even suggest that people would be punished further. And by the way, I'm not on my own in this analysis. The DUP is an outlier. The DUP is on is on their own amongst the other parties in taking this stance. The rest of us realise whatever our points of divergence or difference, all of us know full well that there is a widespread popular expectation, a correct expectation that people roll up their sleeves now, get back to work and start delivering on the bread and butter issues that matter in the okay. here and now. And that's what needs to happen, Gavin. Michelle will lead our team up to Stormont tomorrow, Monday. The MLAs, the new team will sign in and we are ready uh, to go. We are very, very conscious uh, of the need to make politics deliver and to deliver quickly for people okay. in times of an inflationary crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen right. since the 1980s. Just because you mentioned that they're going to be signing in tomorrow, there is an argument that if there is no executive to be formed, even if that wasn't at the, the result of Sinn Féin's actions, that MLAs shouldn't receive their wage. Do you believe that they should draw their wage while they were unable to govern? Well, listen, I, I'm not I'm not conceding for a second that there won't be an executive. There must be an executive. But if there isn't? That's, that's my position. No, well, I, I am not conceding that point. We're only 
a matter of 24 hours after the, the count has concluded and what has been a very long uh, election campaign, the people have spoken. Uh, each party has received their democratic mandate. The power sharing arrangements are clear. There is now an onus on the parties to meet. The business committee will meet on Tuesday. The uh, assembly will be convened, I, I think, early next week. Mm. Um, and uh, at that point, there is an onus on us to nominate and appoint a first and deputy first minister. Okay. And that's what needs to happen, Gavin. And I'm not given ground for one right. moment on that position. Um, your party has retained the same number of seats that it had in the previous assembly. That's 27. The overall share of nationalists in the assembly is down because of losses incurred by the SDLP. Uh, the proportion of the electorate who voted for overtly and explicitly nationalist parties remains as it was previously. It is 40%. Your party will now have the entitlement to nominate a first minister, but does this election advance the case for a border poll? I think this election reflects uh, the extent of change in the North and certainly our vote is up. We've had a very successful campaign. The Alliance Party have had a very, very good day out and congratulations to them. Uh, at the expense, it has to be said, of the SDLP, the Ulster Unionist Party and the DUP are, are down. There is that dynamic yeah. within uh, unionism. Um, and the, the challenge now for everybody across the political spectrum is to find common cause, to work together. And nowhere is this more important than in planning for the future. The election has essentially been about two things, delivering in the here and now in terms of cost of living, the health service and so on, critical issues. But it's also been about working in partnership, who's prepared to do that and delivering for the future. But so I think given that's that, a very healthy thing and a very good thing. But given that it is not the preserve of Stormont to decide on the timing for a border poll, then what can you actually do to advance that cause in Stormont? Well, you, you'll have heard me say many, many times that the most important thing now is that all of us, uh, and particularly people in political leadership, acknowledge and accept that there is a, we are in, in times of very profound change and that that change has to be managed. Because we've seen, for example, in the Brexit experience, just how chaotic things can become uh, if there isn't that level of planning and that level of engagement. So that's priority number one. But are, are you going to be able to, to pursue that though? Because, I mean, you know as well as I do then that the, the positions of First and Deputy First Minister can't act uh, in, in isolation. They have to act in concert. And if, if Michelle was unable to trigger that sort of process when she was Deputy First Minister, then she's not going to be able to do it as First Minister either. Well, I, I think actually the Citizens' Assembly needs to be triggered by the Taoiseach. Th this process needs to be led by Dublin, in my view. Um, I think it's absolutely critical that the government here in the national interest recognises the change that I've described, but also identifies and recognises the massive economic and social opportunities that lie ahead of us in, in the coming years, in the coming decades. So your party so occupying the job of First Minister then doesn't actually materially change that if it's up to the Taoiseach to act anyway? Well, no, I, I think elections change uh, everything in as much as they, they set the political mood and the political uh, tempo. But the, the first and deputy first ministers, are, are that office is what it is. The Taoiseach is the head uh, of government here in Dublin and is principally and primarily, in my view, in our view, charged with um, understanding and defending the national interest. And it is in Ireland's national interest now to recognise and embrace the change that is happening on our island to figure out collectively what's in in our best interests in the years 
um, ahead and to have a process where we can dialogue and where we can plan to ensure that that change is okay. orderly democratic and entirely peaceful. If I could ask you just about one other issue before I let you go, you've spoken at length this week in the Dáil about the need for the site of the new National Children's Hospital to be taken into state ownership. But parking that for a moment, are you happy with the assurances uh, from the St Vincent's Healthcare Group and the government that even if the site is privately owned by this new charitable trust, that there won't be any religious influence in the operation of the hospital? Well, of course, all of the, the documentation is being very carefully scrutinised by the Oireachtas, and I think that's a very welcome thing. Of course, I hear assurances uh, from people that I believe are made in absolutely good faith. So I think those need to be uh, need to be given a fair wind, but nonetheless, they need to be scrutinised. But on the issue of ownership, it, it strikes me that when the taxpayer is investing uh, up to a, a billion euros in a new facility, it only makes sense that the state would own the land on which that hospital is constructed. And the position of government doesn't tally with that common sense. On the one hand, the Taoiseach says this is public ownership in all but name. Uh, if mm. that is the case, well, then why not full public ownership? I mean, the Sisters of Charity, bear in mind, had committed to gift the site mm to the state and to the people. Yeah. And so our and position is that's what should happen, okay. that, that we need to simply correct for that. And rather than having a very, very complex um, system of ownership, it just have that clarity. And I think that clarity would give great comfort to many, many people who for very good reason are very concerned about even the prospect in the future of any interference uh, by way of religious right. dogma and the provision of services okay. to women. We will leave it there. Leader of Sinn Féin at TD for Dublin Central, Mary Lou McDonald. thank you very much thank for you. joining us this lunchtime you, on, the rec- on the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk.